Well, I don't think that I have ever preached on a passage this long before. Were you all able to track the story as it progressed? It's, it's one story. It's, it's a long time frame, but you get to the end of Kings, and the author of Kings has been building to this point, and it's, it's just this climax of terror, destruction, horror at what happens to the land of Judah. It's rapid in the story. First, Pharaoh, Necho, we, we've, we've, just, we've just finished with Josiah, right? You remember how glorious that was. And that's part of why this is so crazy. We're going from the glory of the Reformation and the holiness of Josiah to the terror of the utter destruction of the land. So first, Pharaoh Necho of Egypt removes Josiah's son Jehoahaz from the throne and sets a king he controls on the throne. <clears throat> Eliakim, whose name is changed to Jehoiakim. So, if you're able to follow, remember all these names. You're better than me. I had to write them all down and I had to go back and try to remember them the whole time. <clears throat> but Jehoahaz is removed. Jehoiakim, also a son of Josiah, is put on the throne. But that's not the end, right? We've seen before outside powers have influence, and not just influence, but control over Judah and the Jews, right? But this time, it's going to go far beyond that. It's not just that he's shown military dominance and that he's going to uh, force them to pay a tax to him. Jehoiakim serves Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon after that. So Jehoiakim was put in on the throne by Pharaoh, but Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians, they have such influence and so much power that they push the Egyptians off the field, and now everybody's got to pay their tribute to Nebuchadnezzar. So Jehoiakim stays on the throne and serves Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, but what happens? Any of you kids remember what Jehoiakim did at that point? Yeah, you remember? Nope, the wrong guy. We'll get to that guy later. He rebels. He rebels against Nebuchadnezzar. Now, does it go well with him? No, it does not. Still, even while he is rebelling, they do not escape God's wrath. In chapter 24, verse 2, we read, The Lord sent against him 
bands of Chaldeans, bands of Arameans, bands of Moabites, and bands of Ammonites. Now, as if it wasn't bad enough to have rebelled against the most powerful king in the world and know what that's likely to mean, now you've got all of these bands from the surrounding nations coming in. And it says that the Lord sent them. And it says at the end of that verse, so he sent them against Judah to destroy it. Now this isn't any surprise to us if we've been reading through Kings. We've, we remember the promised judgment has been delayed, but that the Lord has continued to say it is coming. He's been merciful in delaying it, but it will eventually fall upon the land. And so, as they're suffering under these bands of Chaldeans, Arameans, Moabites, Ammonites, Babylon comes back and sieges the city. And Jehoiachin surrenders to him after three months. 10,000 are taken captive, leaving only the poorest. The temple is plundered, as is the palace. And Nebuchadnezzar places Zedekiah on the throne for nine years. But this isn't the end. The plundering of the palace, the plundering of the temple, the destruction of the land is continuing, right? But it's not made it to the end. And this is why I decided we're going to read this whole passage. So what happens with Zedekiah? Zedekiah also rebels. Zedekiah must be, I don't know, what is he? Stupid? Loco? Look at 24, verse 20. And we read why it happened. For through the anger of the Lord, this came about in Jerusalem and Judah, until he cast them out from his presence. And Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. So God is bringing this about through wicked, foolish kings. Wicked, foolish kings. Now, we're familiar with the concept of wicked, foolish leaders, right? I've been scared several times hearing the things that our own president has said with no fear of the Lord before his eyes. Not just our current president, Joe Biden, but our former president, Donald Trump. Neither of them appears to have any true wisdom. 
any fear of the Lord before their eyes. And the Lord is pleased to use such wicked, foolish leaders to bring about the destruction of the nation through their foolish actions. And that's what happens with Zedekiah. Zedekiah rebels. God is the one who is doing it. So what happens? Nebuchadnezzar returns. At this point, Nebuchadnezzar appears to be getting a little bit sick of this business. I'm sure some of you parents have <clears throat> gotten sick of repeating yourself to your kids at times. Nebuchadnezzar is ready to deal with the problem once and for all. And he returns, besieges the city, starves them out after two years. And when they come out, the temple is not plundered, it is dismantled. And you get this throwback in the chapter to the description of the glory of the temple. Right? The pillars. The glorious pillars with network and pomegranate. And we remember reading about their construction earlier in the book, right? The glory of the temple, the place where the Lord dwells among his people. It's not just been defiled. We've seen it defiled, right? It's not just had its treasury emptied to pay off the invaders. It's not just been plundered. It's now been dismantled. The bronze sea on the four bulls. You remember? What did it hold? 20,000 baths. Huge. Gigantic. Broken apart into pieces and carried off to Babylon. The temple burned. The palace, not plundered, burned. All the large houses burned. The wall torn down. Gone is the glory of Jerusalem. Departed is the Lord. As we read this, if we have forgotten earlier in the book, hopefully these things, these verses remind us of how beautiful the construction of the temple was, of how rich the land was, of how powerful they were under David and Solomon, right? Everything has been flipped upside down. It's all opposite now. The pots, 
verse 14 there in uh, 25, the pots, the shovels, the snuffers, the spoons, all the bronze vessels which were used in temple service. There's nothing left. Everything is gone this time. The fire pans, basins, fine gold, silver, anything and everything. <clears throat> and then, verse 18, the captain of the guard took Sarah, the chief priest, and Zephaniah, the second priest, with the three officers of the temple. And what happens to them? They're executed. Nebuchadnezzar ends his besieging of the city, his destruction of the city, by placing not a king, no longer a king, you don't get a king anymore. A governor. Now you get a governor. And the governor is Gedaliah. Who's Gedaliah? Who's ever heard of Gedaliah? Gedaliah is nobody. Gedaliah is not of the royal line. There's no confusing anymore whether there's a king in Israel, is there? It almost reminds me of when the prophet asks the king of Israel, is there not a, is there not a God in Israel that you have to send to a foreign land to ask their gods, to inquire of them? If there's not going to be a God in Judah, there's not going to be a king in Judah. King of Babylon struck them down, put them to death. <clears throat> Kings are either dead or in exile. Jehoiachin is in exile. Zedekiah gets one of the worst punishments that's ever been invented. His sons are slaughtered before his eyes. Then his eyes are put out. Bronze fetters he's taken to Babylon. This is a heavy, heavy judgment from the Lord. And it's heavy to read it, isn't it? It's scary. It's sad. When you read the Psalms that mourn the fall of Jerusalem, by the rivers of Babylon, we sat down and wept. 
and our captors required of us a song. How can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? Read Lamentations and it washes over you in waves the lament, the mourning of Jeremiah during this time. But you know, the destruction of Judah, the destruction of the palace, the destruction of the temple, the tearing down of the wall, the taking away of captives more than once till there's nobody left in the land but a governor. It's not the end. It gets worse. What is the worst thing? Gedaliah is assassinated by Ishmael. There's nobody left but a few bands that have hidden in the wilderness. And here this governor that's been given charge of the land to try to make peace and justice and allow it to thrive under the rule of Babylon is assassinated. You think that's going to end well? Remember what Nebuchadnezzar just did because of the way that they kept acting, all their rebellion in this land, and now they've assassinated the governor that he put on the throne? I don't think that's going to end well. And so, they do what I would want to do. Run away! And where do they run? Did any of you kids catch where they ran to? Oh, that's how they got, that's how they fled the city, yeah. They fled to Egypt. They went to Egypt. Now, what in the world does that have to do with anything? Why do I bring up Egypt? This is, do you guys know the word nadir? The nadir is the lowest point. This is it. This is where, it's not, it's not finally the destruction of the city. It's not finally the tearing down of the walls. It's not finally the replacing of the king. It's not even finally the destruction of the temple, though that is close to the bottom. It's when they go back to Egypt. Of all the things, they end up back in Egypt. That's the lowest point. And why is that the lowest point? How could that be worse than the destruction of the temple? Any of you kids have any idea? After all, a bunch of them were taken to Babylon. That's bad, right? Why is going to Egypt worse? 
Going to Egypt is worse because that's where they started. Going to Egypt is worse because that's where they were in slavery. Going to Egypt is worse because it's undoing every last bit to the last little tiny jot of what God has accomplished for them. They put their trust not in the Lord. They put their trust in Egypt. And they've put their trust in Egypt in this story several times. And Egypt has never come through for them. Now, we read a fair bit, and I'm not going to try to go and read large portions of Jeremiah and of Chronicles and other places to fill in even more of the story, but let's be clear. Even what we read makes clear that they put their faith in Egypt earlier, and Egypt didn't help them. And one of these rebellions, Egypt isn't mentioned, but elsewhere we read that that's what they were hoping, so that Egypt would be... Egypt brings their army and quick hightails it back. Never mind. We can't fight Babylon. So, the destruction is complete, isn't it? The city's gone. The people are gone. The promised land is gone. God has fulfilled his promise. These evil kings have led the people ultimately to reject the promises of the Lord. Again, that's not super clear in our text, but they could have stayed. In fact, God had told them to stay and that it would go well with them. It's one of the saddest things in the Bible that Jeremiah the prophet who watches all of these things take place and warns them, no, don't do that. And then they do it. And it's terrible, right? And he goes, okay, well, now don't do that. And of course, they hate him and they do that. And it's terrible. And he goes, no, okay, Have you learned? This is God's judgment. Now, don't do that. And they hate him. Why do they hate him? They they think that he's a collaborator, don't they? He's working with the Babylonians. He's trying to get us to give up. He's trying to make us lose heart. He's trying to keep us from fighting. Yes, he is. That's not something that you want from your leaders, is it? Unless it's the right thing to do. You know, there is only one thing worse than being under God's hand of discipline. And that is 
refusing it. Refusing it is what they do, step by step. And the saddest part of the Bible, I think, is Jeremiah being taken against his will out of the land to Egypt. What a sad, sad end for Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. There's a reason that he lamented, isn't there? So, Jeremiah's prophesying, trying to tell the Jews to obey and accept God's discipline, but they refuse. Just like they refused another time, much earlier in their history as a people, they refused to enter the promised land. And God said, fine, I will discipline you. And they said, no, we don't receive that. Talk to the hand, God. We don't receive that discipline. We changed our mind, so you can't discipline us. We'll go ahead and we'll go into the land. You remember that? God was going to send them to wander, and they say, no, 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 no. We aren't going to disobey, so no discipline. But of course, that is refusing to obey, isn't it? And you see that in this story, the same thing. You know, they're unwilling, simply unwilling to listen to what God has said. And so what happens? The discipline continues until they've made it worse and worse and worse and worse through foolish, wicked leaders. <clears throat> and it starts with Jehoahaz and Jehoiakim. Now, do you remember who the father of Jehoahaz and Jehoiakim were? It was Josiah. It was Josiah. Now, I want you to listen all the way back at the beginning of where we started reading, the end of chapter 23, where Jehoahaz is introduced. Verse 32, it says, He did evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his fathers had done. But who was his father? Josiah was his father. Was Josiah evil or was Josiah good? Got a thumbs up out there. That's right. Josiah was good.
in verse 34 reminds us that Josiah was who he was replacing. Eliakim, whose name was changed to Jehoiakim, is also the son of Josiah. It says the son of Josiah, he was made king in the place of Josiah, his father. Verse 37, he did evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his fathers had done. Now, does that stand out to you? His father's Josiah, we're reminded of it. Josiah is specifically mentioned in both he and his brother. It says that they did evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that their fathers had done. Who is their father? I know, I just got done saying it's Josiah, right? But is Josiah their father? Who is their father? Apparently somebody else. They've got fathers, don't they? And these fathers are wicked. Men who did evil in the sight of the Lord. And that's the footsteps that they walk in. Then Jehoiachin, it says, He did evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his fathers had done. In, verse, in, in 24 verse 9, and then, in 24.18, Zedekiah, he did evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that Jehoiakim had done. And then, the next in the royal line that we read about is Ishmael. Ishmael was who? Ishmael's the one who assassinates Gedaliah. Now, <clears throat> if you think about that, do you want Ishmael? You can't when you see the outcome, right? Everybody has to flee to Egypt. But he's a fighter. You see the temptation, don't you? Who wants Gedaliah in charge? He's just like Jeremiah. He's a collaborator with the enemy. The king of Babylon put him in charge. He wants us to listen to the Babylonians. It's pretty inescapable that we don't like men like that. He's a weakling. Ishmael is strong. Ishmael avoids capture and all of these fights. Ishmael's of the royal line. 
Ishmael's a man of action. Ishmael, Ishmael, he's our man. Don't you think? Wouldn't you like Ishmael? I know. I just got done explaining how bad it was. But imagine for a minute if China invaded the United States and burned Washington, D.C. We might not mind too much about that particular loss. But all the biggest cities have assigned governors now. And what are they going to do? Enforce all of the rules of the CCP. Right? Are you going to be a fan of this assigned governor? You're not. I'm not. And that's what's going on here, right? Taxes going to a foreign country, building up their army. And so what in the world would you do? It's clear that Gedaliah is not who we're going to like. And Ishmael, we're going to like him. But each rebellion makes things worse for everybody. And I don't think Ishmael could possibly think he was going to successfully rebel against Babylon. There's no army. You understand? I mean, it's... Why does he assassinate Gedaliah? I think he was probably just angry at the collaborators. Trying to make a statement is how one commentator puts it. A bloody statement. We believe in the throne of David. We believe in having a king from the royal line. Down with the collaborators. So who is Gedaliah's father? He's of the royal line. David is his father, right? And that matters. That matters. Who is your father? Who's the father of Jehoahaz? Who's the father of Jehoiakim? Who's the father of Josiah? Josiah's father, I actually remember this. Josiah's father, I remember it this week, was Ammon. Ammon was evil. But who was Josiah's father? 
David was his father, wasn't he? And that's what Ishmael wants to have back, right? He's of the royal line. Jesus asks in John 8, he's speaking to the Pharisees, the Jews, And they answer him. He, 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 he makes it clear that he doubts who their father is. And it says in verse 8, I mean in, in chapter 8, verse 39, they answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Abraham is our father. We're Jews. We're not like the Samaritans. They don't have Abraham as their father. They're not of the royal line. Right? Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, If you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. Do the deeds of Abraham. If you're of the royal line, do the deeds of David. And don't you think that's what Ishmael would have said? I am. I'm hiding out in the wilderness, just like David did. Striking a blow for justice against the enemies of God, just like David did. A man of bloodshed and war, just like David was. But Jesus says, do the deeds of Abraham. And, and, and Ishmael would say, yeah, Abraham who, who, when his people were taken captive, he went after them. And he rescued them. He defeated his enemies in battle. He didn't just let them take everything. But there's only one thing worse than receiving God's discipline, and that's refusing God's discipline, right? Now, I say there's only one thing worse. You might think, well, what about receiving God's judgment? But that's precisely what those who refuse his discipline, receive his judgment instead. Because the Lord disciplines those whom he loves because they are his sons. Who is your father? That's the whole question for the Jews. That's the whole question for Ishmael, for us. Who is your father? Here is your heavenly father, he has said, here is the discipline. It's coming. He's told them through the prophets, it's coming. They've continued to disobey. And it says in verse 4 of chapter 24, speaking of the sins of Manasseh, he filled 
Jerusalem with innocent blood, and the Lord would not forgive. But the Lord is a forgiving Lord, so why does it say the Lord would not forgive? Manasseh himself, you remember all the wickedness that he did, right? But Manasseh himself humbled himself before the Lord, and God was merciful to him. So why does it say God would not forgive? The land was still covered in the bloodshed that had come before. And they were continuing in it. And they were continuing in it. Jehoiakim, Jehoahaz, Jehoiachin, Zedekiah, all of them continued doing evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that their fathers had done. They they chose who their father was going to be. And it wasn't Josiah. And their response to God's coming wrath was not even what wicked Manasseh's who was the final straw. He humbled himself. But the rest of them? No humbling. Josiah was not their father. David was not their father. Their fathers were the evil men who had gone before them. From beginning to end, Scripture is filled with this question of the sons of God and the sons of man. At the very beginning in Genesis, it speaks of the sons of God and the sons of man. And the contrast between the two. Who is your father? If you are willing to receive his discipline, it will be painful, won't it? And you don't want that. Hebrews 12 tells us what we all know, which is that it won't be pleasant. It will be painful, right? But there's only one thing worse, and that's refusing it. Because refusing it doesn't get you out of it. The Jews still wandered in the wilderness, didn't they? It just meant that they got defeated in battle first. Refusing it didn't mean that they didn't suffer under the Babylonians. It just meant it got worse and worse and worse and that they ended up not even in their own land. Not taken captive. Voluntarily going back to Egypt. The place of slavery. Horrible. The sins continued. The rejection of his discipline continued. And so the question before each of you 
today is how has the Lord disciplined you? Are you receiving his loving discipline? Then praise God for it. Thank him for it and repent. Could you ask for anything better? I know I said it's the second worst thing. But there's really only two things, just like there's only two fathers. Receiving his discipline because he loves you or receiving his judgment and wrath because you are of your father, the devil. Turns out that the second worst thing is actually the best thing. I set before you life and death. Which will you choose?